Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe today is the last day of February. And what do you know, tomorrow is the start of March. So far it seems like 2022 is going by quick, uh, but that's what happens when uh, when a lot of us get older in life. We just don't have control over it. But uh, the good news, though, is that um, we are almost um, at the end of this um, series of Adams versus Jefferson, the tumultuous election of 1800 by John Furling. You know, I, I do hate to see um, that this uh, comes to an end, but of course, all the stories that I've shared with you all have had to come to an end at some point. But in this uh, podcast segment, we're going to um, be learning more about the transfer of power. And more often than not, we've been led to believe, even in 1800, that the transfer of power went smooth from one party to another. But of course, if I give away most of it now, there probably wouldn't be a need for me to even share the podcast to the full extent that, that is for the segment. But I was surprised um, to learn that um, that the opposite happened. However, I will admit that that what did take place in 1800 paled in comparison, though, to what happened um, last year leading up to the um, inauguration. And I'm not going to get into anything political, but uh, but for those of you who have not read Adams versus Jefferson you all would get a better appreciation for why uh, things you know, took place the way they did leading up to the uh, transfer of power. But I'm here to tell you all, um, as much as I can um, share with you all, as to what I had read when reading this book and understanding why the um, circumstances took place the way they did. So our uh, first lead-off question uh, for this segment is the following. What newspaper was the first to report President John Adams's President John Adams's defeat come mid-December 1800? I'll give you some choices. Is it choice A, the National Intelligencer, choice B, the New York Times, choice C, the Washington Post? Let's think about those choices very carefully, folks. You know, in 1800, you know, the capital is just relocated from Philadelphia to Washington. I'm sure that there probably is a, um, a newspaper company in D.C., but it, it's probably not anything sophisticated like what there is today with the Washington Post. So the answer is choice A. It was the National Intelligencer which just so happened to be a newspaper published in Washington, D.C., and it was the first paper published in the nation's new capital. This newspaper was the first to report of John Adams's defeat. But here's the bigger question I'll ask you guys. Was this newspaper affiliated with um, Republicans or Federalists? What do you all think? We should keep in mind that newspapers then uh, were very uh, party-affiliated, just like there are newspapers today that cater to one political party, and then there are newspapers that cater to the opposition. Well, it turns out that the National Intelligencer um, had a strong bias against Republicans, including Thomas Jefferson. So if 
The National Intelligencer has a strong bias against the Republicans, as well as uh, newly elected President Thomas Jefferson. Uh, then the newspaper itself is a uh, pro-federalist. It may not be the first newspaper, and it probably won't be the last newspaper to um, express opposition towards the new uh, president. But it just so happens that the National Intelligencer was the first of its day to announce that uh, John Adams had been defeated. And how ironic it was the first coming from, uh, given that the newspaper itself was a uh, pro-Federalist paper. Well, after uh, mid-December 1800, President John Adams had pretty much fallen out of sight. And there are reasons for why he fell out of sight. But what I found interesting is that um, between mid-December uh, of 1800 and early March of 1801, John Adams has 80 days left in office. So that means he's technically got seven weeks Actually, I take it back. He's got, um, I'll take it back, 11 weeks and three days. Think about it. There's uh, seven days in a week. 11 times 7, 77. So he's really got 11 weeks and three days left to uh, still be able to accomplish some uh, goals. But I think a lot would depend on how uh, many in his own party um, feel about those uh, objectives. Because uh, many within the Federalist Party have alienated themselves from their commander-in-chief. Is it fair to say that those whom have alienated themselves could have been uh, pro-Hamilton? Perhaps. And it might be fair to say that there were those in the Federalist camp who just simply did not like Adams. Because he was not the uh, equivalent of a George Washington. But then again, uh, very few... Um, leaders probably have been able to match up to the um, status or rank of uh, George Washington, given that he had been the first in the hearts of his fellow countrymen. But there are some uh, reasons for why John Adams simply just fell out of sight. One of them was, yes, uh, losing re-election. That hurt. And it hurt because the party was not unified. And it also hurt because Alexander Hamilton um, made accusations about Hamilton that were, in my opinion, very unjustifiable. And when you have someone like Hamilton who, yes, he might be a bright individual from a financial perspective, but yet he has no um, boundaries as to what's appropriate and not appropriate to publish when it comes to jeopardizing the well-being of a party's um, reputation, or not just reputation, but the well-being of a party's chances to win re-election, that is a sting as well, too. I mean, how is a party to be unified when there's not enough um, unity to even begin with? But besides losing re-election, the death of his son Charles, whom I have mentioned in, in a couple of other podcast segments, still weighed heavily on his mind. As most of you know, uh, based upon what I've shared with you all about Adams' son, Charles, of course, John Adams and his wife did have other children, uh, one of them being uh, Mr. John Quincy Adams, who would one day become president of the United States. Charles um, was just one of those individuals who fell off the map. 
In other words, he just um, could not uh, get it together in the sense that he had allowed himself to um, to to get um, succumbed into um, drinking without any um, limits. The alcoholism itself alone destroyed Charles, and it um, forced him to uh, do things that were unbecoming, like abandoning his family, allowing his law practice to... Uh, to deteriorate. But John Adams um, severed ties with his son about a year before his passing. And now all of a sudden John Adams has lost re-election. He has now begun to wonder, what could I have done differently to have helped my son? What if I had been there for him rather than disown him? Of course, Abigail was with her son Charles by his side when he passed away. But during this time, John Adams um, preferred seeing only those closest to him, like his wife Abigail, whom he confided in greatly. Uh, but then again, the two of them confided in one another um, tremendously. They were a, a very good um, couple. But John Adams does not feel comfortable being around those whom he cannot trust during this uh, time of um, uncertainty, not just in his life, but maybe in times of uncertainty that he still feels that the country uh, is still trying to um, recover from, given that the nation as a whole has just endured um, a two-and-a-half-month um, fight over whom was going to be um, president, and knowing that he couldn't do anything to change the outcome. So there's just there's a lot going on for John Adams to that he is struggling with. So it's not that John Adams doesn't care about his country, but when but knowing that he's lost a re-election, knowing that he's just lost a son to alcoholism, some I'm beginning to wonder for John Adams, he's 65 and a half years old. I'm beginning, you know, he might be getting to wonder, hey, is life still worth living? I would think he would know that maybe life is still worth living, but there's just a lot of um, unfinished business for him. The bigger question might be is can John Adams find peace um, in the long run, uh, knowing that, okay, given that my son died from alcoholism, can I find closure? But that would be up to uh, John Adams himself. But President John Adams wasn't involved um, with the House of Representatives' ordeal behind resolving the election. But privately, he, along with his wife Abigail, wanted Jefferson as America's next president. Because the two of them knew that he wasn't deceitful, manipulative, or cunning like Mr. Aaron Burr was. But then again, John Adams has known Thomas Jefferson um, for just a little over a quarter of a century. Remember the two men met during the Second Continental Congress in 1775? After all, it was Mr. Adams who told Mr. Jefferson in Philadelphia in 1776 that a Virginian should write the Declaration of Independence. John Adams said to Jefferson, Me, even though I like conflict, I'm very obnoxious. And a, someone like me who's obnoxious probably would not be the right fit to write a document as powerful 
whereas you, Mr. Jefferson, have the ability to do so because of your superb writing skills. And yes, uh, John Adams was right about Thomas Jefferson's uh, abilities, uh, in terms of his writing abilities, to be able to go about writing a uh, powerful document. Of course, as most of us know, the Declaration of Independence didn't have that uh, successful one-time writing. There were about 86 revisions. John Adams and uh, Mr. Benjamin Franklin uh, assisted Jefferson with the many revisions. But... You know, we look now at a quarter of a century later as the start of the 19th century. If John and Abigail Adams want anyone to be the new president, it's going to be Thomas Jefferson. They just, they trust the guy. I mean, they've known him for so long, for for about a little over 25 years. They know that he, um, yes, despite his differences in government, in terms of how the government should be run, they just feel comfortable with him. I would. Uh, not knowing how Aaron Burr is going to be from one day after the other. So uh, what legislation was set to expire come March 4th of 1801, being Inauguration Day? That uh, piece of legislation that was set to expire was the Alien and Sedition Acts from 1798. And this is something that Thomas Jefferson is all in favor of doing. As uh, most of us know, the Alien and Sedition Acts from 1798 were geared towards uh, deporting aliens who came into the country, and the sedition part of it had to do with uh, jailing uh, political dissidents whom questioned government officials um, as well as uh, the government based upon their writings in, in newspapers. So for uh, Jefferson and his party and and just everyday people, they are relieved about this because they will not have to worry about dealing with the wrath of unfair punishments, all in the name behind questioning government and the government officials, most notably those government officials whom uh, were Federalists. And knowing that both houses of Congress were in Federalist hands, the Federalists pretty much wanted to find a way to eliminate the opposition not so much altogether, but just by reducing their means of voicing um, anything that stood in the way of what their agenda was all about. Well, if one piece of legislation is set to expire come March 4th of 1801, being the, the Alien and Sedition Acts from 1798, did the Federalist-controlled Congress enact legislation right before John Adams's presidency was set to expire come March 4th of 1801? Yes. And as a matter of fact, John Adams um, advocated this legislation even before the 1800 election began. As a matter of fact, he was advocating this legislation as um, early as 1799. The Federalists enacted the Judiciary Act of 1801, which created 16 federal circuit courts, along with establishing 23 new federal judgeships, meaning all judiciary posts would get filled with Federalists. This is a last-ditch effort, basically to secure, what do you call it, control of the judiciary, of course, you have to, we have to remember, yes, that uh, no, you know, there's, we, in a democracy that, um, or rather I should say under the Constitution, um, the Constitution discourages any branch from overpowering the other, 
But the Federalists know now that they've lost both houses of Congress, they, that they are about to lose both houses of Congress, the least they can do is enact this Judiciary Act that will um, go about um, ensuring that all the judiciary posts would be filled with Federalists who would still be able to uphold uh, various laws that they had enacted um, from the time George Washington was president up until um, the beginning of Adams's presidency and hopefully up until the end. But the new justices that became um, appointed to their um, posts, or rather I should say judgeships, became known as, became known as the Midnight Judges. They became known as the Midnight Judges by the Republicans considering that they were appointed to federal circuit courts by President Adams on the eve of his final day in office. So in other words, they're being appointed at the last minute, but the bigger question is, is that when a new administration comes into power, being from the opposing party, will the opposing party still recognize those appointments? That's always something to, um, to contend with. And it was so in the early years of the Republic. Now, Abigail Adams uh, left Washington for Quincy, Massachusetts on February 13th, right before the House of Representatives had declared Thomas Jefferson the official uh, presidential winner. John Adams spent the last 19 days in office alone. However, he did um, host a state dinner honoring a delegation of Native Americans, and he went as far as writing a personal letter in response to what Alexander Hamilton's wrath had caused and what had, what had a good deal of Hamilton's wrath caused, folks. John Adams' um, election defeat. It cost him his bid for re-election. The ironic thing, though, is that this letter that, uh, that John Adams wanted to write and publish in the out in the public, he never he didn't do it. He didn't do it because, for one, he didn't he was he was already dealing with enough as it was, knowing that besides losing re-election bid, he's he's still grieving internally about the the passing of his late son Charles. But he also knows that there's enough fuel to the fire going on as it is, as it is within his own party. Adams was smart enough to realize that, hey, look, if I, if I publish this in the paper, it's going to cause even more heartache for the party, and the party itself might not recover. In other words, maybe it might be better to publish this article or publish this letter at a later time, perhaps if in the event, say, Mr. Hamilton were to die somewhere down the road, and this way I wouldn't have to worry about dealing with him. So the bottom line is, yes, John Adams wrote a personal letter, but he didn't say everything on his mind by posting it out there to the newspapers where the newspapers of that time would have had a field day with it. It's almost like the equivalent now in today's time where, you know, many of us, if we're smart enough, we would know, okay, we need to think long and hard about what we write in an email because it's not secret. And whatever we write in an email, if it's not, if it doesn't come across right, then you know, others could say that it, that the wording could be used against us. So, yes, John Adams didn't have electronic media, obviously, and none of our forefathers did. But it is fair to say that in the case with John Adams here, he was uh, smart enough to somehow still retain his composure 
and think twice before submitting an article to a newspaper only for it to backfire to where the party would probably not survive um, down the road in the near future. Where was Thomas Jefferson still residing roughly two weeks before getting inaugurated? He still took up residence at Conrad and McMunn's. Remember that boarding house that's located right near the Capitol building? It's, it was located on what is now uh, modern-day New Jersey Avenue. Well, he's still there. And it was at this boarding house where he wrote his inaugural address, along with determining whom would join his cabinet. And he was also tending to business interests for Monticello. I'll say this, he must have enough money on him to be able to afford um, staying at this boarding house because I can't imagine what it would cost each day. But we also have to remember that, that this is where he was staying during his whole time as vice president. So let's keep in mind that there probably weren't a whole lot of options for uh, people to choose from in Washington, given that it's... Um, you know, it's just, it's fairly um, still a new capital, but, you know, buildings are probably still being added on. But it is probably fair to say that many of the politicians whom did not take up lodging in Washington probably took up lodging in Georgetown, uh, Baltimore, uh, or even in Alexandria, Virginia. As a matter of fact, many of the politicians uh, even viewed Washington as a wilderness. They saw it as a place where they didn't even want to spend the weekends at. They just felt as though the new capital lacked the same luster and elegance that Philadelphia had, and it didn't even compare to um, the port cities of George of Georgetown, uh, Alexandria, uh, Annapolis, Baltimore. Washington was just missing a lot. But over time, Washington will get better, but right now it's it's just not um, that elegant of a place for many of the uh, sophisticated elite to want to be um, spending a great deal of uh, long-term time at. Now, March 2nd of 1801, just two days before the inauguration, does anybody want to take a guess at what Thomas Jefferson does? This isn't anything bad. But what do you think, if there's one thing Jefferson loves to do the most, and it probably is a stress reliever for the, for the time in which he's living in, is Thomas Jefferson a horse rider? Yes. Did he own uh, horses at Monticello? He sure did. Does Jefferson like uh, riding horses as a means of just um, getting the stress off his chest? Yes. So, two days before Inauguration Day, Jefferson rents a coach for getaway purposes. He needs a long time. Well, I mean, he needs a, lo he needs, um, a lot of time to himself. And why do you think he would need a lot of time to himself right now, folks? Well, what, is, what he is about to do next is going to be a um, life-changing... Um, moment. I mean, he's had many of life-changing moments, but this is the biggest of them all, and that he is going to be our new commander-in-chief. He's probably got to be thinking to himself, 
Is the, will any new states be added to the Union when I'm president? Is there a possibility that maybe the territory of the United States could double in size? Are we uh, going to be able to maintain some form of peace with England? And will our relations with France improve? Can this young nation avoid uh, going to war in the same manner that it had avoided doing so under Presidents Washington and Adams? So for Thomas Jefferson, you know, he's got a lot at stake. And you can't blame the fella for needing to get away for for uh, a period of time on March 2nd just to be able to sit down and think to yourself, what are the next four years going to be like? But then again, there's a possibility it could be eight. It's monumental to say the least and to think about it. He's not dealing with the 24-hour media, folks. But the biggest worry he would have to contend with, just like Washington and Adams did, were the newspapers. Because even Jefferson himself knows that there will be newspapers, Federalist newspapers, criticizing him every step of the way. Now, let's uh, try to be in Thomas Jefferson's shoes here and... Let's uh, try to get an understanding of what his mornings would have been like, even before he became president. What time do you think Mr. Jefferson might have eaten breakfast in the mornings? I'll give you some choices. Do you think he would have eaten breakfast at 6 a.m., 8 a.m., or 11 a.m.? The answer is choice B. He usually ate breakfast around 8 a.m., now, we have to keep in mind that Mr. Jefferson probably got up as early as 5 or 6 a.m. Now, what do you think his breakfast would have comprised of? And this is the same kind of breakfast he was eating on the morning of March 4th, 1801. But he probably ate this kind of breakfast at Monticello. His breakfast would have probably comprised of bread or what we think of as corn cakes with cold ham. Okay, think about that, folks. Cold ham. And he's either drinking coffee or tea. Funny to think that it was just just a little over a quarter of a century ago that many in America uh, despised tea. But then again, the only people um, drinking tea were, were women. Women of, um, of higher uh, class status. But then again, at one time... Uh, a woman's uh, choice of beverage would have been tea as a means of showing um, appropriate uh, manners of, that pertain to hospitality purposes. But, of course, a lot has changed since the American Revolutionary War time, and uh, Jefferson does prefer drinking both coffee and tea. Of course, when I think of Thomas Jefferson and beverages, I always think of wine. Because Jefferson truly was a lover of European wines, most notably the French. But he also had great taste in Italian wines. He even acquired a um, taste of wine. Uh, we call it, he even acquired a great taste of wine uh, from uh, Portugal and Spain. Uh, so the bottom line is Jefferson um, enjoyed his wine. And there are... Uh, a, Many good books on Jefferson with regards to wine, uh, but how he went about uh, choosing his wines 
that's a unique story onto itself, but that would have to be for, for a whole other uh, discussion at another time in terms of long-term um, information. So Thomas Jefferson uh, would have begun his final preparations en route to his um, official inauguration around 11 a.m. on March 4th of 1801. As a matter of fact, he was asked if he wanted to ride in a carriage. Do you think he uh, wanted to ride in a carriage? He actually didn't. I was surprised by this, but then again, I thought, but then again, it might say a lot about who Jefferson was. You know, Jefferson did not believe in the pomp of what uh, European parades were all about. In other words, Jefferson didn't believe that he needed to arrive to the Capitol on a golden chariot. He didn't want to be viewed as someone who was um, who was so powerful that that all he cared about was everything top of the line. But we should keep in mind that even Jefferson himself, when it came to dining, Jefferson did like the finest of things. However, he was kind enough to um, to say that he wanted things a lot more simplistic on inauguration day. So he didn't. Um, request a ride in a carriage, largely in part because he viewed carriages as being expensive to many Americans. Maybe he was a little bit concerned about not wanting to foot too big of a um, taxpayer uh, bill on the uh, taxpayers themselves at this time. So what did he choose to do instead? He chose to walk. And he didn't walk by himself, folks. He got accompanied by the Alexandria, Virginia militia. He was also accompanied by U.S. Marshals. And how ironic, folks, that U.S. Marshals, as well as court clerks, were um, their posts were created under the Judiciary Act of 1801. So prior to 1801, there was no such things as U.S. Marshals or court clerks. So uh, there were Republican congressmen and senators as well as uh, as well as certain members of Adams's cabinet whom wished to participate in the festivities. Now, the celebrations are, alone are not being confided to just Washington D.C., but many of the celebrations took elsewhere outside the nation's capital, and these celebrations were most notably in regards to how the election dispute between Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr was resolved peacefully. For many people, they were worried about whether or not the Republic would survive, considering just how much partisanship had evolved by the time John Adams had become president, and knowing that George Washington in his farewell address had warned about the dangers of political parties and the factions from within the parties themselves, what it could do to the nation's young Republic. But yes, a lot of people were just ever so thankful to know that the matter was resolved peacefully. For most of these people, or for, for all of America, the power, or rather I should say the transition of power from one party to another was going to occur without any blood getting shed. Nobody had died during the deadlock, and a new era of presidential leadership was about to take place. However, those whom weren't in attendance at Jefferson's inauguration did not have any idea whatsoever that um, about what was about what would eventually happen next. 
Well, let me ask you this, folks. Where's John Adams on March 4th, 1801 at 11 a.m.? Is he present at the Capitol's entrance to greet Thomas Jefferson upon his arrival? The answer is no, he wasn't. He couldn't bring himself uh, together considering how he lost the election from within his own party, including other personal matters, as I've already said, uh, most notably the death of his son from a year ago. It was just too much for Adams. I know one would say that that he must have appeared to have been like a sore loser, but I don't think he was. Um, I think John Adams just um, John Adams was just struggling with so much to where he just um, could not. Um, I think he just felt it was just best to uh, leave as quickly as possible. Because maybe he was afraid that if he said something else that was on his mind, that it would perhaps uh, ruin um, whatever uh, relationship he did have with Thomas Jefferson. In other words, he didn't want to take his anger out, perhaps, on the wrong person. You know, people have their own ways of showing uh, their emotions and their um, and how they feel on the inside. But, you know, even in 1801, it's fair to say that there were... Um, men of um, high status whom struggled to um, overcome the uh, misfortunes of defeat. But at least we could say that John Adams um, was one of those uh, individuals whom did not go as far as saying, well, because I lost, I'm going to hire someone to take out Mr. Jefferson. No, John Adams had enough class and decency not to go that route, but I think deep down John Adams probably was relieved to know that no blood had been shed and that nobody had died. I know that he would be, have, I have no doubts that he was relieved about that. But it was more about what he was dealing with internally that just, that just was not able to be resolved at that time. But it is fair to say that maybe when John Adams does go back to Massachusetts that he will be able to find some form of um, inner peace. So by the time Jefferson entered the Capitol, Mr. John Adams had already departed from Washington and was well north en route to his home of Peacefield in Quincy, Massachusetts. What a fitting uh, name for a home, Peacefield. Finding peace even in times of um, tragedy and times of uncertainty. Well, um, you know, whenever a president uh, gets uh, sworn in, um, what person is the one who uh, goes about swearing in the uh, new president? Is it the Secretary of State? Is it the Speaker of the House? Or is it the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court? It's choice C. The Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court has the uh, distinction of doing that. And whom uh, became the new Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court prior to March 4th, being Inauguration Day? Well, let me ask you this. Was it a Virginian? Was it a uh, Pennsylvanian? Or was it someone from uh, New Hampshire? The answer is um, a Virginian by the name of Mr. John Marshall. Is John Marshall a Federalist or a Republican? He's a Federalist. So therefore, because John Marshall is a Federalist, is he fond of Thomas Jefferson regarding his political beliefs and ideologies? No. 
Well, let me ask you all something this. I, I learned this some time back. I don't believe many of you all would know this, and that's okay, but I think you all are going to be blown away. John Marshall and Thomas Jefferson were related to one another. Jefferson was a second cousin one time removed to John Marshall. And it turns out that Thomas Jefferson's mother and John Marshall's mother were sisters, meaning that both men had direct ties to the Randolphs of Virginia. Now, isn't that a small world? We'd like to think that that's a small world for all the right reasons. But knowing that John Marshall and Thomas Jefferson have opposite political ideologies and have not been able to find uh, some form of common ground where they can find an issue or two to agree on, that could um, raise a lot of red flags um, now that Jefferson is going to become president. And here's John Marshall, his cousin, the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. You know, Jefferson doesn't want a big government. Jefferson's not big on strong central governments. John Marshall is. And I think it's fair to say that John Marshall is going to oversee to it that the federal government has more broader authority than the states. Now, um, who does go about formally introducing Thomas Jefferson, if, given that John Adams is not there? Well, it turns out it's Jefferson's vice president, Aaron Burr. He goes about formally introducing Mr. Jefferson. Most of Congress is present, but three-fifths of Adams's cabinet chose not to attend. So three-fifths, folks, is that a higher percentage or a lesser percentage? That's a higher percentage. Three-fifths of Adams's, Adams's cabinet, meaning 60% were not present. So it's fair to say that two-fifths were, being 40%. So three-fifths of Adams's cabinet is not there to attend, and someone else isn't there to attend either, too. He's gone back to Massachusetts himself. House Speaker Theodore Sedgwick, who is a good friend of Mr. Adams's. Jefferson's speech, um, I thought, based upon what I read in this book, was um, it was a good one. But his speech focused on um, wanting to restore harmony and order, considering what had taken place in the last two and a half months regarding the ballot vote deadlock. And can you blame the, the man? No. He knows that the country has endured a lot. But he also knows that he wants to do whatever he can as the new leader to modify things to where Americans can still feel good about themselves and know that democracy still um, has a place in the hearts of the American people. So one of his first steps in his speech aimed at seeking removal of the Alien and Sedition Acts from 1798, which were already set to expire. And Jefferson emphasized on this a great deal because he knew that government could not function if people's liberties got curtailed, all in the name of speaking out on something they opposed. So think about it. How can, uh, how can anyone live under a democracy if they're going to be um, jailed, and fined against their own will, all because they are questioning something that government officials and the government as an institution is um, doing that, uh, for better or worse, is not um, having a, a good outcome on the American people. So, in other words, Jefferson knows that, you know, newspapers, regardless of their party affiliation, do have a right to publish um, 
information that they feel is relevant to the greater public. But one should not have to be um, forced to spend a year behind bars, all because he uh, published something that the other party simply just didn't like. Jefferson also addressed the importance of religious toleration. Okay, folks, this is big. But we should keep in mind that, of course, in 1784, Thomas Jefferson leaves to go to France. So it's in 1786 that Mr. James Madison finishes what Thomas Jefferson had introduced um, at the start of his governorship in 1779, and that was a measure to establish um, greater reform for religious freedom in Virginia. So religious toleration is essential for Thomas Jefferson because government cannot interfere in how individuals choose to worship. So in other words, there needs to be separation of church and state. It's already proven to be effective in Virginia, and I would think it'd be fair to say in all the other states. However, Jefferson knows that the, uh, that the opposing party is very big on establishing religious strongholds, and in Jefferson's eyes, religious strongholds do pose somewhat of a threat because that, in his eyes, it's a simple violation of church and state. Jefferson believes that the church should not be telling the state how to govern. That is, an established church should not be telling the state that how to uh, govern the people and how to go about conducting uh, policies, and that the state itself itself should not be telling the church how to um, conduct its sermons to its congregation members and the state should not be telling the church what bible it can use uh, for preaching to the greater congregation so in other words church and state in thomas jefferson's eyes must be independent of one another and Jefferson also advised those present that they weren't severely divided as many had been led to believe. Jefferson even said in quotes, and I'll elaborate on this more here in a moment, we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists. Gosh, I wonder what that really is supposed to mean all along. I mean, you know, yes, you've got one party who's Republican, and then you've got one who's a Federalist. But what was Jefferson trying to get at here, folks? Jefferson referred to the Republicans large, largely on the grounds that when, when, I, when any of us should think of the word Republican, how about more so in regards to people's desire to maintain a Republican form of government that would be for the people and by the people? Whereas Federalists... Jefferson was referring to a federal system of gov government where the power itself was shared by both the national and state governments. So maybe in Jefferson's eyes, he's trying to be um, more open-minded and, okay, yes, when I think of federal government, I think of the national government. But at the same time, Jefferson knows that one level of government can't be uh, dominant over the other. So he sees the federal system as a uh, symbiotic relationship between both the national and the state governments. Jefferson did not see any need to strengthen the national government. He firmly believed that, that the American people's interests were more preserved than elsewhere in the world. 
he might have a point on that, largely in part because, think about it, Americans have a Bill of Rights. You know, they have the right to free speech, the right to assemble, petition, freedom of religion. They have the right to be free from cruel and unusual punishments. They have the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizures. They have the right to be free from... Um, they, have, they have the right to be free from... Um, self-incrimination that is uh, they have the right to be protected under uh, double jeopardy where they can't be tried more than twice for the same crime um, Americans have the right to a fair and speedy trial Jefferson knows that there are many um, that there are people in many other nations even in 1801 and it might be fair to say England being the former mother country where not everyone else has um, certain inalienable rights that um, assure them fundamental liberties. So this is a huge step um, in Jefferson's eyes, knowing that we have now gone into a new century, and here, here I am now at the highest level. I'm going to see to it that America's um, interests, in terms of the people's interests, are as preserved as they can be, knowing that there are nations elsewhere in the world where the people in those countries do not have those same luxuries. And I think we ought to be reminded that of that in today's time. I mean, we should seriously be reminded of the fact that not everyone in some parts of the world, not everyone's entitled to a fair trial. Um, not everyone is entitled to the right to free speech. Not everyone can um, exercise their right to freedom of religion um, without being intruded upon. So let's not take all that for granted, folks. Jefferson um, wished for less government and wanted the states to enjoy all powers not belonging to the federal government. That is the Tenth Amendment, those powers reserved to the states. And, of course, that's something that would change over time as well. And Jefferson himself believed that militias were better equipped to resolve conflicts with enemies versus a national a.k.a. Standing Army. Well, that's a whole other topic for another um, matter, but I'm thinking to myself now here, we're just about 15 years into uh, being a, a republic. Militias aren't necessarily a bad thing, but it might be fair to say that over time, militias might not be able to do the job that they once might have been able to have done on other circumstances. You know, yes, militias were prevalent, or they came into play uh, during the American Revolutionary War, but at that time we were still fighting for our independence from the mother country. Now that we are an independent nation, you know, many in America, and even Jefferson's own party, are okay with the presence of a navy. It's just that many people are still skeptical about the presence of a standing army, even in times of peace. Jefferson's ascension to the presidency was attributed behind the sacrifices that he felt came about from the American Revolutionary War era, where the American people sought to remove themselves from Europe's old world guard, which restricted individuals' rights to fundamental liberties, being life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Think about it, folks. The old world guard, that was a, like a monarchy. If anybody did have freedoms, it was those whom adhered to the king. And 
If you lived in England, if you adhered to the king and you were in his inner circle, then you better make sure that you are a member of the Church of England. Otherwise, you would not have been allowed to have been in his inner circle, and you might not have even been allowed to have participated in the government as a whole because um, England was still adhering to that infamous Test Act of 1661, which pretty much made it a requirement that all elected government officials take up um, allegiances to the Anglican Church, uh, Church of England, and um, and by doing so, they would uh, be able to um, reap the benefits of uh, serving uh, the king and his the king and country. And of course, that law remained on the books um, two years after Thomas Jefferson and John Adams died in 1828. What does that tell you, right there, folks, about loyalties and um, and allegiances? It says a lot. And that was something that Thomas Jefferson would have been all out opposed to. So, yes, the old world guard was really about removing monarchy from um, America. So the removal of the old world meant that Americans had it in them to govern without turning to institutions far and away, whom had made many of her subjects, whom had made many of her subjects' decisions above without for, without proper, or I should say, formal consent. And, and as we all know, that changed after the uh, French and Indian War. Many in America felt that Parliament's um, enactment of various leg pieces of legislation became a direct violation of, um, of consent, or what we call a direct violation of formal or proper consent. So Jefferson knows... And even Washington and Adams did that in order for a republic to exist, a Republican government to exist, there has to be um, proper consent. In other words, laws can't be made without, um, without the legislature coming together. Because if a legislature is not involved in making those laws, then how can a law itself be valid, uh, not just for the government, but for the people below whom are being governed? So Jefferson's speech lasted only 30 minutes. Can you believe that, folks? Only 30 minutes. But we have to keep in mind that there are no news stations at the time. So, you know, Jefferson can, he can do his speech for as long as he'd like. But I think it's fair to say 30 minutes. I mean, considering that Jefferson was not the biggest fan of speaking out in public. But he did get his message across. A very powerful one, to say the least. And yes, power itself was turned over peacefully despite John Adams not present. Politicians to Supreme Court judges, including Chief Justice John Marshall, had all put aside their differences to help ensure that government still functioned as the nation was still recovering from the political aftermath of the past two and a half months. The Constitution still remained intact, and nobody died prior to March 4, 1801, ensuring that America survived another test, given a new century had already begun the year before in 1800. You know, many people are asking, okay, well, what other tests did we have prior to 1801, prior to March 4, 1801? Well, I've mentioned it from other podcasts. When George Washington became president on April 30th of 1789, there were many who were wondering whether or not our government could even function, knowing that we were $76 million in debt to France. And how were those debts going to be paid over time? How would taxes get raised? How could the government perform the most daily, um, the most simplistic daily tasks? So 
it's fair to say that in just shy of 15 years of existence, that America's Republic has faced its share of um, its share of challenges, but they but the Republic has gotten through, even when it was least expected. So, yes, what a miracle it is that the Constitution is still there. Nobody has died, and America has survived. And yes, John Adams may not have been there, but it had nothing to do with Thomas Jefferson. But I'm sure that John Adams is wishing Thomas Jefferson all the best. Well, thank you for your time, as always. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to be discussing the epilogue to this uh, series. And I'm sure some of you are probably wondering that despite what took place in this election of 1800, will Thomas Jefferson and John Adams be able to salvage their relationship? In other words, at some point down the road, will they be able to um, make amends and will they still be able to have a friendship that will remain intact up until the time they pass away? I'm beginning to think that somebody out there who knows them both very well might be able to lend a hand in renewing and overseeing to it that their friendship gets renewed because sometimes outsiders or third parties do have a way of bringing um, people back um, together. In other words, sometimes there might be a falling out. Sometimes people drift apart. But I'm led to believe that somebody out there who knows Mr. Adams and Mr. Jefferson well enough will be able to come on the grand stage and bring the two of them together. Well, thank you for your time. As always, I look forward to being back on the air again next. And wherever you all may live, uh, continue to stay safe. Take care.